Welcome to Pilot Boys Podcast. It is episode 110. Today we've got some news and notes for you. We're going to talk about Virgil, rest in peace. We're going to talk about Black Friday, the Omicron variant, and a little bit of sports with Bill Belichick, Mr. Cantor, or Ines Cantor Freedom now, and the Golden State Warriors. And uh, of course, before all of that, we're going to do our college football sprint. We have a season to digest, Ohio State fans, and we have some some trash to talk about, maybe some other things around the league, so we feel a little better. So strap in and enjoy the podcast. Let's go. Welcome to the Pilot Boys Podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. And here are your hosts, Vishwant and Partha. And we're back with another college football sprint. It's been a decade or so since any of us had have had to talk about a Ohio State loss to that team up north. But as we have said for many years, uh, it is good to have a rival um, that forces us to compete. Um, and that team up north to their credit, dominated us on Saturday in a way um, that we probably is going to humble us quite a bit. So we're going to talk about all of that and all of the crazy stuff that's happening in college football with the coaching carousel, the playoff scenarios, literally everything is up in flames right now. Um, And we're going to get into it with our man, Coach Zach Smith who is in dark mode today um, in many days because uh, there's so much going on in college football. I think he needs to go into hiding uh, and broadcast in hiding. Absolutely. Well, that was a rough one. It was a rough, rough weekend if you're a Browns and Buckeyes fan. That's all I know. Yeah, it was rough. So let's, let's you know, at this point, the narratives have been, have been discussed. Where does the blame lie? And the blame here squarely lies at, the feet of our head coach and our program because we can't say that we don't have the talent on both sides of the field. We can't say that this is this is just an offensively leaning team when you look at the actual personnel and talent. But if you look at what happened in this game, it was inexcusable in the sense that we knew exactly what Michigan was going to aim to do in the game And we were not able to offer any resistance on the defensive side of the ball at all. I don't think they punted the ball from the second quarter on to the end of the game. And when you're a program like Ohio State or Alabama or these programs with this elite level of talent, that type of mediocrity is just flat out unacceptable. Now, if you weren't, you know, if you didn't have that type of talent, then it would be understandable but to be dominated like that at the line of scrimmage was really the most disheartening thing and i think zach we saw it early in the season when tulsa ran all over us when oregon ran all over us um but something happened where suddenly our offense was able to dictate many of the games that happened even the michigan state game was probably an outlier because the part of the reason the running back didn't get off is that we were up so big that they couldn't run the ball um, as much anymore. The snow played a factor, everything played a factor, but let's hear your 
your take. That's my take on it. Let's hear your guys' take on on what happened and 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 what this this signifies. If it's a big deal, if it's not a big deal in, in the grand scheme of things. Well, I think there's there's a couple things that you need to look at, right? And the most glaring issue is Ohio State was not the tougher team, right? And that that's been a rarity, right? Yeah. That that yeah. they were exposed as soft. Right. And that, that's that's something that I don't know that we've said about Ohio State in 10 years. I mean, even in losses, Virginia Tech, Ohio State wasn't soft. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, there was it was not a, an element of toughness where a team just rammed the ball down your throat. And I think <clears throat> that's that, that's concerning because that's Ohio State's program. That is what Mickey Marotti does. I yeah. mean, he is literally a toughness coach. I think he's he's not like Alabama's uh, development program or LSU's or some of these other ones where it's very sports science oriented. It's very, you know, it's, it's honestly science oriented. It's it's all about you know developing fast twitch muscles and 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 hand eye coordination and all this stuff that is like so high level when it comes to kinesiology and and physiology. Mickey Marotti does some of that stuff, but builds everything he does around developing toughness, right? That's the whole offseason program. And this game, it was like, oh, man, the whole offseason program was a failure. To, yeah. it, we just got out tough. So that's, that's the first thing that I, I can't, walked away from the game thinking. Um, obviously, the linebackers are a major concern. I mean, Denzel Burke had a bad game. He was playing injured. Uh, corner depth certainly was a problem. Seven Banks was injured, couldn't play. Cameron Brown played well, and then Denzel Burke wouldn't hit anyone, and he, he had his worst game as a Buckeye because he was hurt. So, but the you know, so that was, I mean, concerning that we don't have another corner that can go in the game and play for a clearly injured player. But the linebackers were the main issue. I mean, the D line didn't didn't play a good game, but the linebackers made error after error, backdooring blocks, you know, jumping out of their gap, trying to go under, you know, on the wrong side of blocks, just creating huge creases. And and then the the what we've what I've talked about all year is the triggering. The when there was a guy in the right gap in the hole, instead of triggering, accelerating to the hole to meet the back at the line of scrimmage, they're starting the tackle at three yards. And Hassan Haskins ran like a grown-ass man. So that three-yard gain unimpeded turned into six yards every time. Yeah. So, that- yeah. so well said, Zach. Honestly, like it, the, the thing that you guys called last week about Stroud, I think could be extended to the entirety of the team, which is like, it, it was weird to see the lack of like confidence on the field. Yeah. It was. And then, then offensively, I mean, it wasn't a horrible game for the offense. I think the offensive no. line played way better than, than the media and fan base will tell you today. Um, they went against two really good DNs. And honestly, most of the day they blocked them one-on-one. Yeah, they did. I yeah. mean, I, I, three, I can count three sacks off, you know, off the top of my head that were CJ Stroud's fault because of how he maneuvered the pocket, because of how long he held onto the ball, because he read the wrong side of the field. Um, I mean, he, he ran right into one sack unnecessarily. Um, there was a bogus, there was, there was two legit holding calls. One was completely bogus on Stroud's scramble for a touchdown, which was great to see, by the way. That was but awesome. I, I honestly, I, 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 I thought it after the game. And then when I studied the film, C.J. Stroud just played okay. He His stat line makes you think he played exceptional. He didn't. He missed so many throws. And, and don't get me wrong, he had there was four four or five drops that were just inexcusable. But he missed so many throws. And his, his the way he maneuvered the pocket, when and whenever there was pressure, he did a fadeaway throw, which is like he'd lob the ball. If a receiver had separation, that separation closed because he wouldn't step into a throw and take a hit. 
I mean, I really, I put a lot of this on CJ Stroud and he put a lot of it on himself in the post game. I mean, you know, that's what their quarterbacks are supposed to do. I think he needs to work on his demeanor. Christ, it was awful. Um, well, I, I, I will say this about the game as well, which is the turning point to me happened when we turned the ball over. Michigan had the ball in the red zone. We got an interception and we just pounded the rock down the field, yep. ran, 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 ran. Then got to the red zone and got cute. And suddenly all that momentum shifted. Yeah. And I've seen this. This happened in the Michigan State game when you were following the national championship game. There are these moments in time where Ohio State has all the elements out there. It's snowing. It's windy. It's shitty weather. Michigan came in with the game plan of we're going to run the ball down their throats. And it was working for Ohio State, too. And sometimes you have to look at these conditions and say, we're getting punched in the mouth. We're going to punch them in the mouth. And this is what running the football would have done. It would have slowed the game down. Our defense, which was obviously exhausted and tired, would have gotten longer breaks. And it would have opened the passing game up a little bit more. And I think some of the blame obviously lies on C.J. Stroud. But... Receivers are going to drop balls in that condition, in those conditions. They just are. Quarterbacks are going to miss throws in those conditions. And it just seemed like the thing that bothered me, like you said, it was the toughness. And it seemed like Michigan outcoached Ohio State in this game on both sides of the ball, right? The defense, our offense was serviceable, as you said. Our offense is always going to be pretty good. But if we didn't have three or four miracle plays by our freaking unbelievable receivers, that game would have been a lot uglier. Absolutely. Than it was. Yeah, it would have been. It would have been. I, I think a lot of the blame. I mean, I didn't see anything Michigan did that on, on defense that that got Ohio State. Like, ah, gotcha. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, if we like, ran the ball, we would have been fine. I think it would have yeah, been. Yeah, and, and I think that that onus lies on Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson. I mean, all they do is run stretch zone, which you, you yeah. stretch zone against against two great defensive ends is dumb. I mean, you think about it. it if the whole sense. offensive line is trying to horizontally run to the right and, and as the back runs, crease is open. That's the premise of the play, right? And if you do that and the defensive end on the right is a badass and he doesn't let that tackle stretch him at all, yep. then everyone just runs into each other and it's just a pile of shit. <laughs> it's like, where do you want to run? Uh, like, yeah, why wouldn't you run toward the interior? It made no sense. All these wide receiver reverses we've done all season. We have all sorts of clever ways. We've gotten the screen passes, which worked really effectively in that game when we reversed the field on them a couple times. So many parts of strategy that... I saw play out against every other opponent, and then this week it just didn't feel like, didn't feel like they had the juice, you know. Yeah, it, it was, it was, you know, obviously a disaster pretty much on every front. And if the first series, the first two series didn't tell you what was going to happen, I mean, we Ryan decides to defer to give Michigan the ball, which I still don't understand because he was worried about Ohio State's defense stopping them. Why he wouldn't start with the ball and try to put a score on the board to get momentum going is yeah. is. I, I think crazy, but you know, Michigan goes out, drives right down the field, beats the brakes off of Ohio state. And I mean, demoralizes them. Ohio state gets the ball three and out. And then, you know, before that, uh, Julian Fleming drops the kickoff on a fair catch. So they get the ball on the four instead of the 25, like special yeah. teams, offense, defense, first three opportunities on the field, just disaster. Yeah. yeah. 
is mistake after mistake after mistake. And I think it, you know, goes back to like the premise that you guys brought up last last week was they weren't ready to rise to the occasion. I think we all kind of had that feeling. You know, I was being the optimist, but I will agree that you guys were right on that. And I think, you know, there a couple couple things that I found interesting were, I mean, V said it at the beginning, this is what I said to my dad. I'm glad to have somebody like Harbaugh on the other side that I feel so strongly that I hate that dude. Like, <laughs> he's, he's such a douche. Like, I love that because it makes you more fired up as a fan to want to beat them. And I haven't felt that way about Michigan since I was a kid. So I'm super grateful for that. And um, on top of that, it was nice to see that there are great teams in the Big Ten. You know, I still think we are a better team on both sides of the ball, but it's nice to see that there are teams that'll beat us if we're not showing up at our best. And that's not been the trend in previous years. We've shown up not at our best a lot, and we don't get embarrassed until we get to the national championship game or till the playoffs. And so having that higher level of accountability in our conference, I think is a, is just a good thing for our program. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you take the the any loyalty or fan aspect out of it, what happened Saturday was excellent for the Big Ten, excellent yeah. for the rivalry. I mean, it was honestly the best thing that could happen, and unless you're a Buckeye, Buckeye fan. fan. <laughs> yeah. And for um, the playoffs, too, because you're going to have likely Michigan in there, which they haven't been in one yet. That's an interesting twist to how things are playing yeah. out. And well, you're gonna have, for yeah. the first time ever, for the first time in, in, in the history of the college football playoff, not a single playoff team from last year is going to be in it, I don't think, unless Alabama beats Georgia. I mean, yeah. if Georgia beats Alabama, you're going to have four teams that were not playoff teams last year in it. That's amazing to me. As, as a fan of college football, that's an amazing outcome. Well, college yeah. football is changing a lot right now with what's going on with coaches, what's go, what NIL, transfer, uh, one-time transfer rules. I mean, it's, it's, it's different. I mean, the last five years have been pretty consistent, right? Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, and then throw in a team. It could be Oklahoma, Notre Dame, or Georgia. And that was a yeah. playoff every year. And, and yeah. I think it's shifting pretty hard. It's a better sport as a result. Yeah. 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 I mean, and the, the frustrating thing for Ohio State as a program when you're evaluating the program is that, is that, you know, uh, I actually gained a lot of respect for Jim Harbaugh, even though I think their game plan, we should have, we should have won that game. Urban Meyer would have won that game on Saturday. I can say that with confidence because he would have just run the ball down their throat with JT Barrett and it would have worked. You well, and he, and he had a multiple run game, right? That's that's yeah. the biggest problem is Ohio State yeah. doesn't have a multiple run game. They ran counter one time in the game, yeah. and it was on that drive you're talking about where they, yeah. I mean, it, it, it didn't even hit big, but at least they had a couple different run schemes to go against. If they were to just run that ball into the end zone, then Michigan spirit would have been broken a little bit, just like ours was. And, that, and, no that's and, you, and you look at how that drive ended, right? They had first and goal to five. Right, they they ran stretch for a hard three yards, second and goal from the two. They run a corner comeback to Chris Olave. It's a horrible, horrible ball placement, and CJ Stroud was late. And Chris yeah. Olave drops the ball like one, two, three strikes. You're out. And then on then yeah. you get to third and goal, and Jackson Smith and Jigba jumps off sides. Why a receiver jumps off sides? I I will never understand. Yeah, never. there were so many penalties. I and I have to say this too. There was a huge missed PI call on our side when we threw the ball deep. I think it was to Garrett Wilson. Uh, in the corner, it might have been Olave to the corner, the right corner near the end zone. That was yeah. very frustrating to me as a fan to see yeah. us get called for PI after PI after PI after PI. And I think there were were there zero penalties on Michigan. 
Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't. I'm I think they, they had a few. They had a few. It was it was very frustrating to watch that. Where those penalties. I mean, granted, you should have more mental fortitude as a team to not let penalties influence your momentum, but inevitably they do. And these were key moments early in the game where the refs got involved, and it made it very hard for us to get get going. Cam Brown, Cam Brown's penalty was also an indicator to me that we just weren't mentally like you said, the tougher team either. Mm-hmm. Zach, that does not, that's not supposed to happen. No, um, you got you got to keep your cool, especially in that game. And I mean, I loved what he did. I, I'm, I'm here yeah. for it. He's, he's probably one of two guys on that entire team that I would, I would take into a, a fight in a, in an alley, um, <laughs> him and Haskell Garrett. Other than that, pff, I don't want any of them with me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because the thing is that people are keying on, on what he did, but they're not seeing what the other guy did, but that's part of the game, right? People, Michigan is known to do dirty shit when the refs aren't looking. That's known. They've done it multiple times this season. Yeah, I think what's so concerning about that one is the ref was looking. He's right over top of it, eyes on the defender, like pulling at his ankles. Like it was just how that was not offsetting is mind blowing. Yeah, that's why I thought they didn't call the penalty because I thought they saw what both guys did. And then to call a penalty on, on one guy and not the other guy is that's unfortunate. But, you know, I think as fans, right, like I think we have a lot of ir- irrational criticism one way or the other, rational fanhood and excitement and rational criticism. But if you are a true fan of the program and culture, you take Jim Harbaugh's statement about some people uh, are born on third base and hit their cur- hit and feel like they hit a triple. Whether it's fair or not, it's an opportunity for Ryan Day to digest that and and react to it and respond to it and i think it's interesting because that is the question right this is a guy who hasn't been a head coach anywhere before and he inherited the ohio state job there are going to be some growing pains right Mm -hmm. and i feel like sometimes the irrational fanhood of making this guy into some superhero that they that they make him out to be isn't necessarily the right way to approach it and the counter people who think this guy is terrible, blah, blah, blah. He can't, he can't do it. No, he's a work in progress toward being a great coach. He's a brilliant offensive mind. Um, but we've seen in big games against good coaches that he can be beaten, right? And we saw that at the national championship game last year when we got dominated. And we saw it again this year with Michigan. So the takeaway is how do you grow from this? How do you get better? We better be better on the defensive side of the ball. If this doesn't wake us up, because what Ohio State fans don't want and our culture does not want is for us to turn into a Big 12 team. That is not the brand of football any of us want to watch. And to see our defense beat this bad, miss tackles, we can't control the line of scrimmage at all. Our secondary can't cover anybody. I can't remember a time watching Ohio State football that I felt this way about the defense. No, I mean it's 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 definitely concerning. I mean it's uh it's it's a pivotal pivotal point in Ryan Day tenure right now. Um because yeah. I think in my opinion he's going to have anywhere from 5 to 7 coaches that he's going to replace this offseason. Yeah. And what when that happens, I mean it's an opportunity and it's I mean it's it's a little fragile because you look at what happened with Urban. I mean, he had a, hired a great staff, had some attrition, some guys leave, he made a couple hires that weren't great, and all of a sudden Ohio State was not, you know, on that college football playoff level in 2016 and 2017 right like it's just it is what it is and you're always any program is always a couple hires away from 
either enhancing and becoming, you know, and elevating into that stratosphere or falling down a stratosphere. And, and I think this is going to be pivotal if, you know, with, if Larry, Larry Johnson, I think is going to retire when he does, I think the defensive staff, I mean, pr you probably are going to have to, you know, start over, blow it up. So now you're going to have four new coaches on defense. Um, I think now Kevin, I don't think Kevin Wilson's going to take the Akron job. I, I heard he turned it down, but you, you, Greg Sterawa might be gone because of the Ohio State or the offensive line production. And then I'm, I, I would bet you that you're going to have one or two more coaches leave for another opportunity. Yeah. yeah and, and the thing that I'm seeing kind of probably play out here is that if Notre Dame doesn't hire Mar uh, for Marcus Freeman and he doesn't get a head coaching job, it would seem like he would make the most sense to take over the defensive side of the ball, being an Ohio former Ohio State player. And that would probably be the, the, the next logical step for him to get to that elite um, that elite coaching job that he probably wants, head coaching job that he wants. Yeah, I think I mean, that, that, would, I, that would be I'm, an interesting I'm route, really, but I'm, I think he's, he's going to get a head coaching job somewhere. Yeah, he will. He's a, he's a really bright young coach. I'm not – I'm not – People, people anointed him some defensive guru because he ran Luke's defense. I, Notre Dame was very average on defense this year. I don't get the allure around him. Um, but, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it would be a bad hire, but I don't think that's a home run like you got yourself a great one. I think, honestly, he Ryan needs to go big. I mean, really big. I think DJ Durkin at Ole Miss is a great name. Ohio guy, played for Urban, worked for Urban, yeah. um, was not dominant defensive coordinator multiple places and was the head coach at Maryland. And unfortunately, when he wasn't in the building, a kid died in a workout and he got cast to the cast to the, to the, you know, outcast land. And now he's reemerged at Ole Miss and Ole Miss looks good on defense. And I think another name that would be interesting to look at is Corey Raymond from LSU. I mean, a guy yeah. is year in, year out, developing players, recruiting his ass off. I mean, he's, so I, th I think there's a ton of names out there that are proven guys. I don't know that Marcus Freeman is a proven guy, not saying he's not great, but what has he done? You know what I mean? Like he, Luke's defense was great. Okay, Luke's defense still is great after he's gone. So it's yeah. not like, not like when D'Antonio left Michigan State and the defense fell apart. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's uh, that's that is going to start playing itself out now. I think that is going to be a dialogue that comes about, you know, um, whether Luke is the was the right guy for the program or whether day is that's inevitably going to come especially if cincinnati makes the playoff which they should and does pretty well in the playoff it's like it's a direct indictment of two cultures right a defensive based philosophy versus an offensive based philosophy and at the end of the day um more often than not there is a game if you want to win a championship where your defense needs to do the job and no matter what the failures of um, of C.J. Stroud was or any individual on the offensive side of the ball, we can't we can't not acknowledge that our defense is in shatters and needs a lot of work. Heads need to roll. Um, I, I I don't know what's going on with the linebackers specifically, but that's completely unacceptable. Um, they were just getting getting to third level in every run play. So I, I have to add one more comment. Um, Harbaugh's some people born on third think they hit a home run. Describes every Michigan grad I've ever met. Yeah, that. Yeah, that's that was just, the irony in that statement. I was it like, was I mean, ironic. It was yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. It, it was so ironic. Yeah, it but was it was. Wrong. I mean, it was like an important, an important 
thing to fuel off of in the offseason. And that's the beauty of a great rival is they say the stuff that sticks with you, that gives you the motivation to work your ass off. Absolutely. Yep. Hey, you yep. know what? It, I, I talked to a couple different coaches and I told them all, I said, I'm so glad I'm not coaching at Ohio State right now because this is going to be the most brutal offseason for a coach, for a player. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be gut check time. Yeah. Well, if you were coaching there, I wonder, you know, maybe maybe it would have turned out different, Zach. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much impact I would have had on the defense. I'm a believer, my guy. It's called well, you would have you would have definitely been talking shit to them all practice when the receivers were crushing them. I know that. Oh, for a gosh. Yeah. You would have been, <laughs> would have been brutal. brutal. Yeah. And culture would have been different. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I think you would have had more impact than you might think. Well, maybe so. <laughs> well, I've put in I've put in your name for uh, a nomination for many of the open head coaching jobs. Uh, <laughs> let's start with let's start with uh, Lincoln Riley just ghosting <laughs> Oklahoma and dipping to USC. So I have intimate knowledge of this because my girlfriend is a huge OU fan to the extent that she listens to like thirty podcasts like this every week. So yeah. I've had about six hours of this on my drive home, knowing every single detail about the situation. Um, he and a bunch of his coaching staff just dipped. His explanation in their presser yesterday was that he was like, oh, I just found out about it right after the game <laughs> against Oklahoma State. And <laughs> he's like on record being in L.A. like earlier in the season. And like there's like so much of this that's orchestrated about what he's been trying to do. He already did a recruiting visit yesterday to USC that it does not make any sense that he wasn't planning this the whole season. Right. Well, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure when that came up, it, it was pretty much a done deal. I mean, he, he made very clear. I mean, and they, they made very clear that they weren't going to let him say no. I mean, that contract is just absurd. $115 million. They bought both of his houses in Norman, Oklahoma for $500,000 more than the estimated value. So they wow. basically handed him a million extra dollars and then, bought him a $6 million home in LA. I mean, unlimited private jet usage for him and his family whenever they want. Wow. I mean, just absurd, absurd where it's like, I don't even know how you turn that down. I don't care who you are. And yeah. then pay, and then paid the buyout to, to Oklahoma on his contract. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's no way you turn that down. And I think what's interesting is like, this is, this is kind of thematic here, but the storied programs of college football are, um, are going to struggle a little bit more. Like a program like USC has the advantage of being in LA with NIL in in play. That's a totally different value prop to the young athlete to be able to build themselves as a as a influential person outside of the sport. Have a lot more brand deals. Have a lot more access to agents. You know, CAA is based here. Like all these agencies are either here, Arizona, South Florida. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, for athletes from a program like USC, plus it's a storied, storied program that hasn't been that good recently. So I think, you know, for him as an individual, it seems like it works to his advantage. But oh, especially with I didn't know about the private jet. That's that's so fucking sick. Like you could right. you, you do anything for that. But uh, it's interesting too because now Oklahoma's in the situation where they almost have to do what Ohio State is doing, which is find some sense of identity, reset the culture and go back to the things that that made you good. And like they had almost the opposite problem. I watched them um, lose to uh, Oklahoma State and it was like the heart was there, but the talent wasn't there. It was just a it's like a bunch of these like recruits that they've had through Riley have been these like, you know, very, very cute, like 
at like super hyper athlete types that don't have that same sort of mental fortitude that, um, you know, I think guys like us are used to football being about. Yeah. I think culturally, like, here's the thing that I will say about Lincoln Riley. He saw the writing on the wall and made the decision, right? Mm -hmm. Oklahoma going to the, he saw Oklahoma going to the sec. He saw that his brand of football, this is a very self-aware guy. That's what this decision showed me. Right. Yeah. His team is very good on the offensive side of the ball, but they don't have a running game. The defense cannot get right. And he can go to USC, go to Pac-12, weak conference, like you said, all the things that you just said about NIL, changing culture, that embraces the brand of football that he likes. Because I think there was a dilemma within the Oklahoma fan base, just like some of the Ohio State fan bases going through with Ryan Day. They're very similar situations, right? Like offensive masterminds and gurus who can get you almost there but not get you over the top, right? And over time that's exactly what happened he wasn't the the ceiling was reached at oklahoma for him and he saw this opportunity and he jumped on it and it was a smart decision now with that said and we'll get to brian kelly's snake ass in a second but (laughs) this is kind of highlighting all of this is highlighting something that i think is very unfortunate and very unfair and showcases again that the priorities of college football are not where they should be. There needs to be some sort of moratorium or some sort of ban from these coaches because leaving their programs in the middle of a season, they have a bowl game to play. They have a big 12 uh, season to finish out. Um, And Notre Dame is still in a playoff picture, right? Like, it seems like a simple fix to say, hey, you can't poach another team's coach while the season is going on because look at what's happening. Oklahoma now, Bob Stoops is coaching the bowl game. What that does to the locker room and the players, the sudden jolt that that, hap- that happens there. I don't know if Brian Kelly's going to finish out the season or some of these other coaches are going to finish out the seasons where they're at. But that's the unfortunate part of this is it just highlights again the lack of necessity for this body called the NCAA that's paid a significant amount of money to make sure things are run well and run appropriately. This is just showing again, a massive failure. And if you look at also the buyout aspect of this thing, you know, people harping for all these years about players not getting NIL. I read that there's $84 million in buyouts being paid to coaches just this year alone. Wow. Wow. I'm sure. Well, they, they, they've changed the whole market now. I mean, you look, it started with Mel Tucker, 95 million. Then it goes to James Franklin, 85 million. And then now these are contracts, Brian Kelly, over a hundred million. I mean, you're talking about a nine figure contract. Just yeah. absurd. And it's, it's becoming an arms race in college football that we never could have imagined. And Ohio state's going to have to, you know, order the Brinks truck and call them up because Ryan day is going to get courted by, by every NFL job. And now with the precedence is being set there, who's to say he doesn't Nick Saban retires and Ryan day doesn't go to Alabama. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. that used to be unheard of. And now what's going on right now is like, well, whatever, like go wherever you want. You can get 120 mil. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why would Lincoln Riley is a great example. Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly, right? Uh, they rhyme. Why would this guy who played at Oklahoma, that's his alma mater, want any other high profile job this should be his dream job right like well, he and, was living and it and out the university, 
that gave him so much. He was a, he was a nobody. He was an office yeah. coordinator and Bob Stoops like formatted his resignation so late that they couldn't hire someone else to give the job to Lincoln Riley. Like how he could do that to Bob Stoops in Oklahoma is beyond me. It's pretty crazy. And it's, it's exactly what you're saying, Zach. It's like, there's this, this desire from the, the coaches these days. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know. Like, I don't know if money's like, why is money so important? You know what I mean? Like to your point, this is your, it's your university. You've played there. This is your like home. It's your true home for you and your family. Like LA's not, it's, it's not that much. It's, not not better. it's just, yeah. it's just a different thing. It's a different beast, different animal, but like, I mean, he was beloved by the fan base and, you know, for, for anybody, that's an incredible situation to be in. And like in, it's like, I always think of that HG TV show, love it or list it. It's like everyone always, they like go look at some houses and like someone comes and they redo their house. And it's like, they always stay in their house once it's made better. Cause they're like, well, I mean, this is my home. And, you know, I think like, a lot of us could stand to look at our own lives like that and be like, well, what am I really looking for? And could I create that in the current circumstance I'm in instead of having to completely switch everything up to, you know, try to find what I'm looking for. And it just, to me speaks on coaches that are, are focused on the wrong things, you know? Yeah. And it's reflected in the quality of college football that we're seeing, you know, these coaches do not stick around. They don't like, this this situation with both of them, you know, why would Brian Kelly leave Notre Dame? He's Catholic. He said this was his dream job. That's the only reason that he left Cincinnati is because this was the opportunity to coach his dream team. And like you said, Zach, who's advising these guys? Because if you look at if you're someone in Brian Kelly's corner and advising him on his coaching career, you're a guy who's coached in the Midwest your whole career. You've never recruited in the SEC. Your brand probably won't, and who you are, you're not the greatest recruiter because it's it's well known that he hires other people to recruit. That's not something he enjoys. You go down to the SEC, the Deep South, LSU, completely different animal. Yeah, the talent is there, but a guy like Brian Kelly, I don't know if he's going to resonate with the kids and the families down South. And nobody in his corner told him, hey, you got a good thing going on here at Notre Dame. Yeah, I understand it's a new challenge. It's 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 exciting to go and coach in the SEC. But it just seems like bad advice and bad decision making, right? Like I mean, I would I would challenge you on 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 that because what better fit in the world for LSU than Eddie Orgeron? I mean, that guy is LSU. You yeah. cut him open, it's purple and gold. Yeah. And the, the last time a coach did this, right, took the LSU job, it was a Midwestern guy. No way could he relate. You know, not a great recruiter, you know, at, by reputation was Nick Saban took the LSU job. I mean, he was not a fit at all at LSU, but he was a great football coach that worked really hard in recruiting. And Brian Kelly's also had a crutch, or not a crutch. He's had, he's had limitations at Notre Dame. They're yeah, academic standards. They won't let him recruit half the kids he wants to recruit. It's hard to get to South Bend. It's, it's not a great place. There's not hot chicks. Like There's so much about Notre Dame that isn't awesome that, honestly, you put him in LSUs with some pretty sundresses and, and some freak athletes running around and zero academic standards, I'm not here to say he's not one of the better recruiters in the country. 
Yeah, I mean, I just don't think of much of him overall as a coach. That's no, probably that's probably the reason. Brian Kelly. Yeah. I don't think that I don't think that Brian Kelly's in the same stratosphere as Nick Saban. I've heard that those those conversations. You know what I mean? You know what? Now we'll see. Like, I think that is the nice thing here is that these these coaches making these moves. Now we'll see if they're really as good as advertised, or if it was the programs that kept them good. Yeah, yeah, and and, and what it. What's so unfortunate about this is that we're in a culture of everyone does does what's best for them, right? If you go, if you commit to a program and you're a player, and you're not happy with the situation within six weeks of being there, just transfer to another program. Right. If you're a coach and you sign a contract and make a commitment to a school to be there for five years, and a year into it you see somebody else who uh, who's offering you just a little bit more money. You just leave and bounce, leave all your recruits behind, leave all the families you made all these promises to. It's pretty. Dis- it's a pretty disgusting business that we're turning into, and the rubber's going to meet the road eventually with everyone just looking out for the best interests. We're seeing it in the competitive landscape, too. There aren't very many good college football programs. A lot of these games are not fun to watch. They're not great football to watch. And subpar and average coaches are getting elevated for just being decent right like there's nothing that mel tucker has done to earn nine and a half million i have a lot of respect for him but what on his resume and his track record says hey this is this is a guy that deserves nick saban money you know kirk franklin they're they're i mean i mean um franklin at uh at at penn state they're what seven and uh, seven and five team and he he gets rewarded for that mediocrity because they're scared that usc might come poach him and they pay him eight and a half million dollars a year. Like, what the hell is this? You're getting rewarded for not being good. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I mean, it all comes down comes down to demand, right? I mean, the guy flipped Michigan State in in ten months. I mean, from yeah, a bad did. football team to a competitive team. And so there's a bunch of big jobs open. So they were going to lose him if they didn't pay him. And you know, it's just supply and demand. It's economics, right? I mean, did he deserve it? Probably not. But they were going to lose him if they didn't do something. You know? Yeah. yeah. I think I think in time too we'll start to see that there's certain coaches that have value as these like almost like interim type of coaches like like you're talking about Zach where you can hire this person to come in and get something that's not working working to some extent again but then there's a competitive advantage that happens in the long term from someone who's focused on culture above all else and that happens in business that happens in sports it happens everywhere and that competitive advantage is going to stand out more as the more that this ecosystem trends into more transient coaches and transient tenures as coaches. So it'll be interesting for sure, but the market does correct itself on these things. We're just on a different part of our cycle. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this, this, this situation all plays out. But I do think at the end of the day that the data is pretty apparent that you know people with short-term thinking versus long-term thinking, long-term thinkers typically have more sustainable success than short-term thinkers. Um, but there's a lot of openings. There's a lot of market demand. Um, one thing, one final point that I will make on it, despite the criticism here, I will be on record saying that a head football coach at a major college football program does deserve a higher salary than an NFL coach, considering all of the elements that go into being a college football coach because not only are you the coach but you're essentially the gm ceo 
parent, there are so many responsibilities that come with being a college football coach that you don't have at the NFL level. Obviously, it's pros. It's, it's different. But if you were to compare the two, I do think that on on uh, being a head college football coach at a good program is harder than being a head NFL coach. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. Wow. I've never heard that, but I think I agree too. <laughs> Man, well, I guess on that note, you know, um, we'll find out what's happening next week as we see some of these championship games start start to happen. Um, is is the Big Ten Championship this weekend or is it the following one? It's this weekend. Yeah, this, this Saturday. Weekend. And we'll yep. see, I believe the SEC Championship is this weekend as well. Everything is this everything. Weekend. Yeah, all all the championship games are Saturday. You know what? There might be one Friday. Not not the the big ones, but so we'll get some clarity on the playoff picture, and we will be back next week to talk about that. I'm sure there's gonna be more. We're not we're not mathematically eliminated yet. There are scenarios <laughs> in which we could still make the college football That's playoff. Hilarious. As crazy as it seems. Gosh, That's I don't think I don't even think Ohio State fans. I don't think we should want that. I really yeah. don't. No, we don't. We don't want to get in this year. We don't. No, we want to see Michigan go in there and just get their ass beat. We want to see Cincinnati dominate Michigan and then win the national championship. That, I'm all in on Luke Fickle. Oh, oh, I'm I'm all in on that. But and if Cincinnati doesn't win it all, I want Michigan to win it all. I really do. Man, yeah, that would be a humbling. That would be very humbling for us. It would be humbling for sure. But uh, I definitely don't want that. Yeah, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well on that note this has been an amazing amazing college football sprint thanks for joining us zach and thanks as always for bringing your incredible perspective to the show absolutely i appreciate it thanks for having me on show the pilot boys some love by getting some of our exclusive merch at shop.pilotboys.com you're listening to the pilot boys podcast hey this is partha not only am i a pilot boy but i'm also the ceo of lasso I started Lasso to help people improve their movement on a daily basis. We design and create compression apparel that enables you to move confidently, recover safely, and ultimately be the best version of yourself. We use a patented compression technology that activates key ligaments and tendons to help you improve your proprioception, coordination, and balance on a daily basis. Lasso socks were recently ranked number one by Men's Health because of how much they improve how your body works and the overall comfort, softness, and feel of the product. We're very proud of the Lasso socks, so check them out on our website at lassogear.com or at lassogear. Undo Media is proud to be the production partner for the Pilot Boys. Storytelling is what they do. From video production, podcasting, and consulting, Undo Media's focus is on telling your story. Find out why four Emmys and hundreds of clients will back up why you should contact Undo Media for your next project. Look them up at undomedia.com. All right, V. News and notes, buddy. Let's get into it, man. A lot to talk about. A lot has happened in the last, really in the last like five days. Yeah, quite a bit. Quite Let's a bit. start with, uh, you know, this is the the heaviest note, but I think it's worth spending some time on. Uh, Virgil Abloh passed away on Sunday. Um, we found out he was undergoing a two-year battle against a rare form of heart cancer. And, uh, man, I got to say, like, when I heard the news, I was driving back from Thanksgiving. I just had to pull over and cry. Like, it was it was heavy, man. That is That man was, you know, to me, like a complete inspiration. And uh, I had a couple of mutual friends with him, although I never crossed paths. And 
it was always a dream of mine to um to be able to make that connection but i guess you know that that dream is to be held in the spirit world and not not this one yeah uh i think um it's it's kind of eerily similar to the chadwick boseman story right pretty much carbon copy of the of the same story and it's 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 even eerier that i think he died on chadwick boseman's birthday is Uh, that right yeah i think that's the day either the day of or the day before i think it was the day of um but you know i think what it's it's good to talk about in these scenarios right he only lived 41 did he die too soon yes of course he died too soon um but did he in 41 years live a full life worth living is kind of the second question you ask once you digest it you feel the sadness you know that there's going to be an absence um specifically in this in the streetwear and culture world of fashion um that he was a giant in but once you get past that you kind of look at how he lived his life which in many ways he lived his life like you don't know if tomorrow is promised do everything that you can possibly think of any idea you have execute it any crazy wild idea any crazy wild intention you have to put on the universe execute it and i think um his story is that right he is it's interesting because he isn't as pop culture as you would think right he's not necessarily um a known celebrity or anything like that but within the world of entrepreneurship within the world of fashion within the world of culture like especially people who are attempting to get into those worlds this guy's like a superhero you know um but his story is is just like everyone else's and that's i think what makes him relatable to us you know son of Ghanaian immigrants grew up in the midwest went to the university of wisconsin studied our architecture um so and then at a certain point light popped on for him that this kind of like structured path of life wasn't what's for him um and he took that spark and turned it and created into and executed his vision for his own life and it was just it's that's why i think it's so inspiring for people specifically entrepreneurs and creatives to see someone who isn't like abnormal right (laughs) he's abnormally creative um understand culture understand markets and understand how to create products um that would resonate with the culture and market that he was trying um to reach and in addition looking the way that he looked um with with the color of his his skin and his cultural background uh to do that um and become an international icon i think is is a storybook story um whether he lived 21 years 41 years or lived a full life to be 100 for his family and those and his children obviously um it doesn't not that's not necessarily as valuable as having him around you know but for the rest of the world who knew him based on his art and his creativity he has inspired a generation of artists um 
and he has also changed the narrative of culture um especially luxury culture to be uh more embracing um and and to adapt to the culture he was trying to educate people on that's so well said and i think something else that stands out is that he was humble through the whole process he never had to tell you he was the best at what he did it was it was just evident through his work and through his insight and through the way he spoke and he was not driven by the measurement of what everybody else thought of him he was driven by his pursuit of his craft and his desire to reach different levels of understanding of what he he was doing he used to talk a lot about being creative and exploring the unknown and i think that when you live a life like that you see a lot of these folks have their early passing and you know that can be for a lot of reasons but i think at the end of the day it's it's interesting that this was the moment i i thought of chadwick i also thought of kobe where you have these amazingly learned people who are masters at their craft past too young in you know these these tragic ways it, it really does make me wonder is that too young or is that the right time for those souls have they served their purpose in this lifetime at that early stage and their passing in that way is more impactful than if they were to linger on yeah you know would you rather go down as a as kind of a martyr a hero or a martyr you know and we have these stories throughout history you know obviously in culture with with people like bob marley kurt cobain um you know in culture with with martin luther king with malcolm x with series of people throughout throughout um our lifetime we've seen die too young right uh kobe you brought up a good one with kobe um it's it's one of those things like spiritually you know for us it's a lot easier to understand and accept it because it is part of our our spiritual culture right the idea of you live through until you you know fulfill your life's purpose your dharma you know um and and once you fulfill that purpose you have no purpose in this realm your purpose has been fulfilled and you go on if you believe in afterlives and if you believe in the spirit realm of any sort it's almost like you ran the race you won the race and now you get to move on mm-hmm. now that the terrible byproduct and side effect of that is the people you leave behind right specifically in this scenario he's married and leaving two ch- two young children behind that now have to grow with the father and that's like the catch 22 of these scenarios right globally is is your purpose is his was his purpose greater than that his immediate family and those those people around him um because for those people this is this is tragic and something that probably will have a lingering and lasting impact on every single family member that was close to him yeah yeah a hundred percent and there's this um this passage i was reading about actually i've been reading this book the autobiography of a yogi and there was this passage in there talking about those who choose to serve society in a way that's greater than what is expected of a regular individual mm-hmm. who tend to have younger deaths. And uh, I just thought it was interesting that that was a recorded 
recorded sentiment from that. I think that book was like 70 years ago. Yeah, it's a trade-off, right? It, they, a lot of these scenarios, people know the risks that are involved, right? Um, in certain scenarios of giving your all to something, right? Because some of this, you know, some, you know, cancer is shitty, right? You don't know. You can, you can be living a, a perfectly healthy life and still get cancer. But what's also known is that when you empty your cup, right? Like in all of these scenarios, all of these people have emptied their cups and give their all to their craft, to their, their, their creative drive, to their, their vision, the impact that that can have on the rest of your life, your, your physical health, your mental health. We see it with Kanye West, the mental health aspect of it, obviously. Um, the price, right? We always talk about there's always a price to pay for whatever it is that you're trying to do. And maybe in these scenarios, the, the price is that, right? That you don't get to live a full, healthy life. Yeah. Yeah. True that, man. True that. Well said. And the question is, if, if he were to be able to come back, you know, and, and answer that question, the question is, well, how do you think and how, maybe I'll just frame it as a question for you. Um, would you rather live dormant or die enormous? Like, Jay now we on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's the truth. And I think, I think that we all have this choice to make, whether we would like to take on a greater responsibility of servicing society in a, in a larger way or whether we don't. And, you know, there's a lot of suffering that happens from taking on that larger responsibility. There's a lot of pain involved. There's a lot of stress and anxiety involved. And I think it's upon each of us to find that balance for ourselves because we're not all meant to carry that kind of burden. No. We're all wired that way. No, you're not. And that's why it goes back to the same topic. It's being self-aware and, and going through that journey of understanding self and what you prioritize and then relentlessly pursuing what your priorities are. For some people, you know, in, in they decide that that priority, my priority in life is to have a family, raise children, grow old together with with my family right and with that if that is your priority there are certain things that you're going to have to sacrifice as a result and the same is true if you prioritize career legacy vision there are going there's going to be collateral damage for prioritizing those things right and it all comes down to what do you prioritize what do you value and making sure you make decisions based on your value system, because there's always going to be a price and some suffering, as you said, involved, regardless of the path you choose. That is the nature of life. To live is to suffer to some degree. It's not all happiness, you know? And I, I read a passage, um, I think I shared it, um, about how the, the purpose of life is not necessarily pursuing happiness, it's pursuing peace and finding a way to find peace and contentment with your life and the way that you live it, despite the sacrifices that you're making as a result of that, because it's impossible to be happy all the time. It's literally impossible. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's not necessarily 
what what you what you want either. You don't want to live on a high, then all of a sudden that high neutralizes and that's regular. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. you know, on that note, um we'll put the button button there. Rest in peace, Virgil. Um amazing influence. Uh seems like an amazing person and uh a legacy left that I think will inspire a whole generation of artists. Yes. Yep. So moving forward, um let's talk about some of the uh, some of the supply chain stuff that's going on. If you ch- tried shopping on Black Friday, you probably saw a lot of out of stocks, a lot of sold outs. Um, there's a crazy, crazy kind of thing going on with supply chain world. A lot of brands are having trouble getting the products that they need. Um, I was more concerned with making sure our store was staying. In yeah. The- so I wasn't able to really do too much Black Friday shopping. But did you get a chance, V, to... Uh, to get out and about and see any of the other stores? No, I'm not a big Black Friday shopper. Like I'll I'll shop online and stuff like that, but I'm not I'm not uh I'm not into the the chaos of it all. Yeah. Right? It gets um, a little hectic. It gets hectic and it, it used to be fun, right? Before the internet. Like I remember getting up at like four thirty five in the morning so that I could Wait get that and get a coffee. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I think this is underpinning kind of a major problem that I don't know if we as a country are prepared for. We consume more than any other country in the world. What happens to our economy? What happens to everything if suddenly, not so suddenly because we're seeing this, right, because of the after effects of COVID, suddenly there's not enough of those goods um, to be purchased, right? And the demand exceeds, and you see what happens. It's there's obviously the 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 general impact of economically, right? If a if a, a business is not able to sell goods, they're not able to turn profits. If people cannot get the goods that they need, the prices of those goods obviously go up. And then there's also the collateral damage of what it does to a society so dependent on consumption from a psychological standpoint, because there's going to be an increase in crime, there's going to be an increase in arguments, there's going to be an increase in mental health issues, depression, all of these things that are going to result from this simple thing, right? When you have an economy so dependent on one thing which is consumption and that thing is threatened what do we do and the truth is and and i see this is it this is a real threat just like the pandemic was a real threat but just like we were talking about the previous conversation there's a price the companies that are prepared for it and are thinking ahead of it and are small and nimble this is a huge opportunity, right? Um, that's created too. So there's like so many layers to this thing, but it's such an important topic just because I think society really needs to understand specifically American society, how much of a threat this is to our livelihood. Yeah. And to add, you know, the supply chain issues started as a result of COVID. We now have this Omicron variant that has already caused travel restrictions to be imposed as of Sunday, I believe. Yeah. And uh, this is 
you know, supposed to be a different variant that the vaccines are not effective against. And so it brings into question the same question that we've had to answer as a society several times in the last year. uh, What is the risk that we're willing to take to conduct our regular operations, commerce and lifestyle uh, in the way that we want them to make ourselves happy versus the potential health risks of an illness, you know? And um, I don't, I don't know, V. I mean, what, what is all of this, the supply chain, and then now the news that there may be a war, uh, variant that's even more severe than what we've dealt with? How does that all play itself out to you? I think it plays itself out this way. Shit happens. Life happens. And when you think shit is bad, it could get worse. But there's always an adjustment that you can make right it's just like and the people who learn how to adjust to be able to mentally handle all of this information and all of these threats will not just survive but thrive the people who decide to lean into the chaos and and start making excuses for why they can't using these variables as excuses right not saying that they're not real issues but if you accept that they're a problem and you internalize and start making excuses for it, you are going to fall flat on your ass. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the, that's life in a nutshell. Shit comes at you. This is scary. Obviously nobody wants to go back into shutdowns. Nobody wants to go back to where we're at to where we were at two years ago, but you have to be prepared for it. Right. Like it would be foolish not to not to start preparing. If it's not this, it could be anything else. Something else could pop up. A war could start. You know, this is the nature of the world we've lived in for years. We've had relative peace for a long time, but um, the, we've we've gone through world wars. We've gone through civil wars. We've gone through so many things um, that are real threats to our society and our well-being. And it's like are we going to survive it? Or are we going to fold? And I, at this point, I feel like there's just a lot of re- knee jerk reaction and a lot of divisiveness around these topics. That's go- That's I believe is going to lead to failure more than success because it's like, there's no unity around any of these issues, how we should respond to them, how we should handle them. Everybody's like, my opinion matters. My opinion matters. My opinion matters. In my opinion, you have two polar ends. You have the polar right and the polar left, and both of them are dictating the narrative. You know, the the reasonable people in the middle are being drawn out. <laughs> <laughs> there, Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I think it's interesting too, just to observe what is going to happen with the future, right? Because we've already been through a lockdown. To your point, that that means it can happen again. And you have to be open to that reality. If that's going to happen again, how does it affect your life today? How does it affect the decisions you're making, the plan that you have in place? How does it affect, you know, your perspective forward into, you know, business decisions, personal decisions, et cetera. Right. Yep. And like, 
you can't operate in this vacuum of like the world is perfect. And to your point, like in America, especially being raised in America, especially being raised in America through the last 30 years, there's no, I mean, there's no like real significant issue we've dealt with here Yeah. until COVID. It's been pretty chill. Yeah. Say 9-11, but 9-11 was impactful uh, more from a, a patriotism standpoint. It yeah. did affect all of our lifestyles this significantly. It made it a little harder to travel and, you know. Yeah. And it was a, it was a, it was a one-time event that's impact was felt there, right? But, Versus having a lingering long-term impact. Right. And we were able to put the blame on someone. We were, yeah. able to, you know, go and get revenge. So there was like a closure to that narrative. And I think like a lot of people thought the COVID narrative closed with the vaccine. And I, that's just not necessarily how, how right. life works. Like these, these stories don't change, but what, what is the situation is that since there's this precedent to shut down, it's easier to shut the economy down now than it was a few years ago because it's already been done once. You know, people's appetite to it, the resistance to it, I think it's less. You know, I think in general it's going to be less moving forward because people understand the impact of any sort of illness. And then when it comes to the political ramifications, um, I also do feel that the country is headed to um, lean away from the democratic party in this upcoming presidential election. I think that uh, at least from most of the voices that I hear uh, people who were very democratic and democratically inclined in the last election, mostly because of COVID now feel the other way, mostly because of COVID. Right. And so like, I think that brings up two truths. One is that the party that's in charge doesn't matter. This is an illness, right? Yeah. So, it doesn't really matter what you vote for. People are essentially trying to say with their vote, get rid of this shit. I don't want to deal with it. And that's what we all have to kind of come to is this is this is a thing in the world. And, you know, we have to have individual decisions and, you know, opinions, et cetera, that align with the way that our world works and, and our understanding of it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there are many layers, to, <laughs> so many layers to this. And I think, you know, the, the thing is that you have to filter out. I think there's two things you have to kind of have the vision to see, take the present information and, and analyze it in a way that you can understand that the future may be different, you know, and there are signs that this is already happening, that we might be in a rapidly changing world, right? This whole idea, the biggest thing, Facebook changing its name to meta and this whole concept of a metaverse where everything is digital. We won't have to worry about supply chain issues and viruses if everybody's sitting in the freaking house on a computer or on a VR set interacting with each other virtually through virtual worlds, virtual everything. The truth is that as little as I don't necessarily want to live in a world like that, but I've accepted that the the reality is that before my lifetime is over, that that might be true, right? You don't, you don't eliminate it. It seems so far-fetched, right? When you talk about it, you chuckle a little bit, but that's the reality of where people are trying to push the world. Yeah. There is a lot of money behind it and a lot of push toward it. And the truth is that there's also some practicality to it if they can convince people um, to 
stay away from each other, stay in their home, consume digital products, you you basically solve a lot of issues um, at one time if people are willing to accept that reality. And it's it's a scary reality, but as each of these things happen, I think bigger picture and I say each of these things are triggering a domino toward that reality, um, as scary as it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, dude, I, I think that's such a well-said point, and that is the pure argument for us needing the metaverse, is that this is a physical world that our bodies are not suited for to some extent, right? So, several of us <laughs> in percentage of the population yeah. are not suited for the physical environment that currently exists. And to satisfy our social needs, there has to be another way to communicate. Now, yeah. it'll be interesting to see where society goes as technology advances now along the lines of the investment we'll make into this digital universe, this metaverse that um, we'll be able to interact in. And I think the, the thing that you can do as an individual, just figure out where you are on that spectrum and just own it and like let other people be different from you. Don't try to make them the same as you. So if I'm if I'm someone who doesn't want to be on the metaverse, I shouldn't shame people who want to spend all their time on the metaverse. Like it's an individual decision, right? We can all be more accepting of each other, especially in times like this when everyone has a different take, a different opinion, a different risk tolerance. And they should be they like understand like they're they're just like you. They have their own experiences that have formed that perspective. And you know, you're not going to you're not going to convince somebody to change. You're not right. They're not wrong. But what we can do is just understand each other and adapt to each other and be more considerate of each other because this is this is an important time for us to come together as a race, as a country, as you know, as humanity. And it's not a time for us to be arguing over you know meticulous little things and in laws and for everybody to all of a sudden it's like what WebMD did to medicine that's what the internet has done for politics yeah politics culture media everything right? yeah yeah for everything honestly um it's just one of those those realities that that i think we talk about this right living in fear versus living in acceptance of potential outcomes and realities um and i think what's what's happening um, overall is that right because people's fears are leading them to like find cults or find groups um, that fit in with each other um, and just seeing how much that's that's happening and how much fear is running through the world is just like just accept that this is a potential reality, even if it's not the reality that you want. Fight to hold on to your reality, but in some way, if you do not accept that the future is changing, it's just like embracing new technology versus becoming a dinosaur, right? It, it goes back to that with people who are not embracing the internet, not embracing all of the new technological advances. You are going to get left behind if you don't accept that the reality of the world is potentially changing in front of your eyes versus saying, hey, I don't necessarily like this future. I'm going to fight for the present because I love the way the world is right now. But if it changes, then I'm prepared for it. Right. 
that, that's a very healthy way to look at all of this stuff. Absolutely. And on that note, let's talk about things changing and being prepared for them. Uh, Bill Belichick had a lot of things change when Tom Brady left the Patriots and went down to Tampa Bay. And, uh, you know, I think I think Bill Belichick has shown that he was not only prepared for that, but he was prepared for any possible outcome with his team. And I think his his coaching and what he's been able to accomplish this season is a really good example of somebody who, despite a lot of tumultuous circumstances, all the COVID rules, all these different things that he everyone has to go through, he still thrives. He's shown that level of adaptation that we're talking about. Yeah, he has. And I think this is like almost poetic uh, justice for him because early on in the season and last season when Tom Brady won the Super Bowl, um, he got a lot of haters because Belichick isn't the most like, liked human being, right? People like kind of root for his failure. Yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of noise that, hey, Bill Belichick, that, that classic argument, was it Bill Belichick or Tom Brady? And the reality was it was a, a lot of both. But I always said, if you look at the, the, the landscape of that situation, very early on in Tom Brady's career, the defenses were winning those Super Bowls. He was just basically a functional QB who didn't make mistakes. You yeah. know what I mean? And then he grew over time into the guy that could actually win you games, right? And and be the difference between you winning the championship and you losing the championship. But society likes to pit people against each other instead of accepting that both of them had value. And I was always saying that regardless of how you feel about Bill Belichick, the person, he is the best football coach that's ever existed. And he's proving it now. Like last year, obviously, they lose Tom Brady. What did they expect for him to immediately be great but they were serviceable with cam and then this year with the rookie quarterback right um he's basically recreating the magic that he created with tom brady this is a team when you look at the talent specifically the offensive skill position talent and the overall talent has no business being one of the best teams in the nfl at this point but yet they are and that underpins the value of development coaching system culture um that new england understands they look in the mirror and they know themselves and bill belichick looks in the mirror and knows himself and as a result they're able to continue to dominate and he's able to continue to dominate and quite frankly if you look at tom brady what did he do he left new england to go to a situation with Tampa where he has three Pro Bowl receivers, Leonard Fournette, a running back, all pro defense. He was the difference between them being a playoff team and a championship team. But if you replace Bill Belichick as the coach of this exact New England Patriots team, they're probably at the basement of their division and not making the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And that's what I like to measure impact by. And I do think that what Tom Brady is, and he deserves all the credit in the world, is an extension of Bill Belichick and what his culture and what he took away from that and the personal adjustments and, and, and tweaks that he made to, to, to be happy in his football life, right? It served its purpose. He went through it. 
he decided, hey, I want a more fun, relaxed environment where I can have more of an impact. And he went to Tampa Bay. So it's good for everybody involved. That's my opinion. And I think we got to stop doing this thing where we're like pitting them against each other where, and they've both said that we're not enemies. You know, 100%. 100%. They're two guys who just approach football like it's a job. Like, uh, yeah, I I heard this story about Eminem. Eminem, It was uh, from Akon on, uh, it was a TikTok clip I saw. And he was saying that the first time he went to meet up with Eminem in the studio, he pulled up at like 6 p.m. and uh, he was like, yo, I'm here. Where are you? He was like, oh, I left. He's like, oh, when are you going to come back? In a couple hours? And he's like, no, I'll be back at 9. And he found out that Eminem goes to the studio every day from 9 to 5, takes a lunch break at 1, and he's that consistent with his work. And I think like in sports, in culture, in creative jobs, like we all want the freedom to choose our own schedules, but the ones who are the most successful pick it quick and stick to it and they're just consistent like that and uh you know belichick brady like everybody i think that that is respected for their work ethic and accomplishments does approach um life like that in this very structured and and thoughtful way yeah yeah they do and there's you know instead of spending your energy saying i'm going to like or dislike a person uh just evaluate uh, what they do and how they do it. And uh, you can dislike a person and still respect them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I know we got a couple, couple other sports headlines. We'll wrap this thing up for today. Um, Enos Cantor, now Enos Cantor Freedom. He changed his name upon getting citizenship, which I believe happened yesterday, um, has been making some strong comments about China, LeBron, Nike, and, uh, you know, I think um, it's a pretty, pretty interesting situation. If you look into it, um, Inez is somebody who is from uh, Turkey and was essentially on the wrong side of the Turkish government a couple of years ago for some comments he made. And uh, I think that eliminated the ability for him to go back to Turkey. Uh, and he's a pretty outspoken dude in general. What's interesting to me about Inez is that he is a guy who came to America and really values freedom of speech. Now, many of the things he says don't necessarily show a level of sophisticated understanding of the topics he's talking about. But more than anything, I love seeing somebody trying to voice what they want to voice. And for him, especially knowing his backstory, I think freedom of speech is something that he does not take for granted and he wants to utilize it now that he has it as a U.S. citizen. And, you know, moving forward, hopefully he starts to gain a, a more nuanced grasp of how these these things work about what he likes or doesn't like in the world and starts to find some acceptance as to how things work and, and the way to actually create change here. Yeah, I think... Um First of all, a lot of the things and things that he's pointing out are very valid. There's a lot of hypocrisy in the world of, of capitalism, right? And there's a lot that we, we, we promote and say, hey, we represent this. We represent that. These are the principles. But then when a power like China comes into play, who is basically saying, hey, we stand for the exact opposite principles as you do, 
that you make compromises on those principles based on the power that they hold over you. And this is the NBA is just a microcosm of the overall kind of dilemma America is facing with China, right? Which is they control our debt. They control a lot of things for us. They produce a lot of goods for us. We're reliant on them economically, but politically, culturally, we are basically stand on opposite ends of the spectrum. And how do you bridge those two things? And Ennis Cantor is very validly pointing out the hypocrisy of some of these things, right? But the problem is that he's also not realizing that he plays in the NBA. He actively takes on a job. This is different, you know, if he was protesting and saying, hey, I'm not going to play, you know, as a result of this. But what price are you paying? You know, the, the, I see the value that he's gaining. I see he's getting news headlines. And then what value do you have in isolating individuals, right? It seems very personal to me that he would have shoes that attack LeBron specifically when it's in, he's a product of the organization and the environment, right? And are, what are you doing this for? Are you doing this for because you have some sort of personal gripe with LeBron? you're losing your message by by individualizing an issue that is much broader than that individual. Now, with that said, is LeBron a hypocrite? Is he being, yes, he is, because he his, his interests are aligned with a lot of Chinese people buying his sneakers and supporting his number one endorser, Nike. So clearly, but that's the nature when you look at power and, and you say this, how does the world actually work? Yes, we can make changes in the world, but everybody seems to want to point out symptoms and attack symptoms and not the root cause and say, how do we fix the root problem here? Yeah. And well said, the root problems are always internal. They're always our own changes we could make in how we interact with the world because we realize that it doesn't make sense to try and change everybody else at the end of the day. So Rinas, we'll see how his evolution happens, but uh, it's likely that he'll he'll start voting more with his feet and you know wearing that nike jersey every day on the court if you really had a problem with nike probably wouldn't be doing that so i think he's got some personal like you're saying mixed up in this probably from the consistent beatdowns in the playoffs that he's had to go through from lebron i think you know it can't be enjoyable yeah and then also not necessarily like you said fully understanding how systems work yeah and how to make and create positions within those systems that are actually valuable to creating change and not just headlines um, that will get you on Fox News because Fox News hates LeBron James. Of course, they're going to have you on for an interview, you know. What I also (laughs) have to say is that this is a man who shows us how valuable the freedom of speech we have in this country is. And his desire to be a citizen is, I think, enough proof of that. Yeah, his story, I mean, I don't want to take away, we have to understand that this is a man who's going through a learning process. Where he grew up, freedom of speech was not something that was ingrained in him or taught to him. He actually struggled through that. He got banned from his country, you know, um, for being critical of the president. And I think we need to accept as a country, regardless, um, the fact that we all have the ability to actually criticize what we don't like 
is something we shouldn't take for granted. Absolutely. I, I think that this is it's one of those moments you seeing the name change too. It really yeah. touched me seeing him change his last name to Freedom. Yeah. This is someone who's going through a process of and truly does appreciate the rights that we take for granted. And we have to learn with him and go through that process with him. Yeah. And uh, I think our last piece of NBA news, it was another organization that was doubted last year, came back, and uh, uh, Golden State Warriors are dominating the NBA. Everyone's playing at a high level. Steph Curry is playing unbelievable MVP caliber again. Um, you know, at, at some point, and I'm ready to say it, I think Steph's the best player in the NBA this year by a lot. And I think KD is Katie's pretty, pretty damn close up there with him. And watching... Not only his play, but the leadership he exhibits and the, the character traits he exhibits and the way he interacts with people and the stories that come out about how he is in practice or in games or the work ethic or interacting even with the coaches and how he drives his own learning and uh, you know all of these pieces. It shows you why players want to play with him. It shows you why the young players that play with him get better so quickly. And you learn a lot about leadership and you know how to be a great person, I think. Steph really exemplifies that. You know, I'm someone being a LeBron fan, like it was hard to like Steph because of, of the numerous losses in the playoffs we had to go through. But at the same time, like this is a stand up guy and uh, I, I'm really enjoying watching the success of the Warriors this year. Yeah, they are the New England Patriots of the NBA, right? It's just if whether you're an entrepreneur, you're evaluating them from a business perspective or you're evaluating the talent on the court, like if you're a basketball player fan, you're evaluating Steph Curry um, on the court, or you're eval as a coach, you're evaluating Steve Kerr, you're looking at this team and saying they're the gold standard, right? And I know uh, I have to go on record saying this. I said at the end of last season that the Golden State Warriors were going to win the championship this year. And I said it matter-of-factly. I met with a lot of resistance to that. Um, <laughs> You know, and no discredit to the, the Phoenix Suns, the Milwaukee Bucks, or any of the other can Lakers or any of the other contenders. But this is an organization that's just built different, that's run different, that's run better than everybody else, right? Because if you look at this organization and you see how they are building, when they lost KD, that was a big blow, right? But they lost Clay Thompson. It was a big blow. It's the end of the Warriors, right? But the way that the Myers used what he had to acquire draft capital, acquire Andrew, and rebuild this structure in this organization to add Wiggins, to add the kids they added in the draft, the Jordan Pools, they're scouting well. They're building a team with a philosophy that makes sense for the talent on the team. Andrew Wiggins was a guy that they said wasn't worth his contract. But you put him in Golden State where you reduce his offensive scoring pressure and all he needs to do is be the active presence that he is. He's dominating. Draymond Green is playing well. So it's an organization. And if you, you look at it, it's like they put all the pieces together and then you have a maestro in, in Steve Kerr who quickly adjusts to the talent that he has and builds a strategy and culture that fits the talents of his players. And it's just so amazing to just witness. And then you have Steph, obviously, as the as the leader on the court, the the superstar, superhero player. 
that gets it done. And and it's scary to think about the fact that this team doesn't even have Clay Clay Thompson and and Wiseman yet. But I think what everybody was saying about this team, oh, they're a cheat code. They just went and signed KD. No, they won 72 games before they had KD. You yeah. know what I mean? And I like watching the Warriors team without KD more because it's the beauty of basketball without just, okay, we know Steph and KD are going to score all the points. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's showing us how the sport should look too, you know? Yeah. It's not like they're doing anything you can't do. Their talent is, you know, arguably the underdog, right? In most of these situations. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yep. Yep. It's going to be exciting to watch the rest of the season. We will sure to talk about them some more. Um, but I think that comes to an end. And this is a good, good, good day to get back to news and notes. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you guys enjoyed your, your holiday weekend, but you're back on the go. Um, throughout this week and and closing out this year strong stay moving be you you is fly father boys out father boys, we get on